Happy New Year. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to kind of look at some of these last chapters of Romans, so we'll be bouncing around a bit. It'll be a little different message. It means no outline, and you're going to be very confused when this is all over. Hopefully not. The Lord wants us to be eager to maintain the unity the Spirit's created in the church. And so we're going to try to be encouraged in that from a lot of different verses in the last few chapters, beginning here in Romans chapter 12. We're going to read a few verses from chapter 12 and then a few verses from 13, and then we'll look at some other texts along the way. Lord, have mercy on us as a church. I pray now as we turn our attention to your word, speak to us. This is God's word, God's inspired word, inerrant. He says to us in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, 
not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Again, God's word for us this morning. We're living during times and in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the, to the gospel and to the church. Without question, I think this means it's vital for us to stay united. The, the Spirit has created unity in the church. We are members one of another. We are one body. And we need to maintain this by the grace of God because Satan is hard at work seeking to get our minds on worldly things and cause division. The purpose of this message is to prepare us for this battle on this first Sunday of the new year. Again, chapter 12, verse 5. We, though many, are one body. That's what the Spirit has done. Many members, he's made us one. And individually, members one of another. There's an interconnectedness that the Spirit creates. We're united in one body. Christ is the head. And he's done this for God's glory. We're set apart for God. The church is. It's a very attractive, wonderful thing. Set apart, created by him, members one of another for his glory and his purposes. And the pastoral team, recognizing the times we live in, wanted to teach this morning on the value of unity to protect our church in these days. Our unity is going to be tested. Satan is hard at work to divide the church. This isn't a corrective message. It's not meant to adjust anyone. If you think I'm talking to you, you're wrong. It's meant to be preventative. Throughout the history of salvation, of redemption, God by his word has been calling sinful people and redeeming them and creating a new redeemed humanity, the universal church. It includes all believers, all times. As an expression of that universal church, the local church is central to what God is doing. It's important. This is where the local church, not just this local church, but many local churches, is where God is maturing his people and saving unbelievers. Local churches are imperfect, aren't they? They're a mixed bag. They have believers who still sin and even unbelievers who are part of the the church, the visible church. But Christ, nevertheless, is always committed to building his church. He is committed to these local churches Even though there are believers there who still sin, they are joined together. They are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what he's doing. According to the Word of God, by God's grace, 
He's accomplishing many things. Over the holidays, I like to get a, a puzzle, at least started when all my family comes together, all the kids and grandkids, and try to get a cool puzzle and get it out and try to get it started to try to help Sherry and I. We can finish it later, but while everybody's there, we kind of put it out, and then everybody can take a few minutes and, and uh, put a piece here and there. I planned ahead, ordered a great puzzle I knew everybody would love because it had trout on it, and I had it, I had ordered it months ago, but then we moved right before Christmas, and we couldn't even find the soap, so I wasn't sure we'd ever find the puzzle, but lo and behold, Sherry found it, it popped up, there it was, and we put it out, and two of my daughter-in-laws did a great job, got us a great start, they did the hard work, you know, that first part of getting everything together, and we were very excited how far we were along. And then over the next day or two, Sherry and I actually accomplished a great deal and it was coming together. It's very exciting, actually thrilling, really. <laughs> then after Christmas, some of the grandkids came over and um, we decided to take them and our dog and walk in our new neighborhood. It wasn't long before we realized that we had left my four-year-old grandson home alone, you know, like the movie. I wasn't at all worried about my grandson. I was very worried about my home. We were only gone a few minutes. Good thing, because it's amazing the damage a four-year-old can do in a few short minutes. And one victim was, you guessed it, the puzzle. The puzzle that we had been building had been torn apart. What had taken hours to build together had been broken apart by a four-year-old in a few minutes. I said to him, you broke my puzzle. <laughs> he said, sorry. <laughs> I said it twice. You broke my puzzle. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it didn't really move me. <laughs> Just a little effort, carelessly, puzzle destroyed. The point is, churches are like puzzles. They're hard to build. It, it takes many years of hard work. It takes a lot of effort by a lot of gifted people. It takes a lot of investment to build a church. But that church can be torn apart in a minute with, a, with no skill and no effort. And so the goal of this message is to protect our church. So as we look here, and you can, I would encourage you to go back this week, maybe today, and just read through Romans 12.1 down through Romans 15.13. You'll get the picture of what I'm talking about today as I'm going to bounce around. But it's really interesting how Paul comes out of the mercies of God in the gospel into practical Christian living. And this is the section he does it in. The book of Romans is written to those in a local church in Rome who are called by God. That's how, the, the, that's the most frequent one word description of a Christian in the New Testament, called. They're called by God. And in the first 11 chapters, Paul's explaining that the gospel he preaches has the power 
to take these people from the realm of sin and death into a realm, a new realm, a different realm of righteousness and life. Righteousness is a gift. It's central to what he says in Romans 1 through 11. Justification is by faith alone. It is not by works. You don't merit your salvation, your relationship with God. That is the clear teaching of Romans 1 through 11. But in the last chapters of Romans make it clear that the gospel also means believers are transformed and they live differently. And they have some responsibility by the grace of God that they've received to live a different life. The gospel empowers them. Grace is still foundational. You can't live the Christian life without grace. But there is a way that we participate. The gospel empowers us to live a transformed life. So in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, looking back over 11 chapters, brothers and sisters, the word means, by the mercies of God, do not be conformed to this world. By the grace of God, we are being transformed and being conformed to Christ instead of this world. We're being transformed specifically by the renewal of our minds. This is the heart of what it means to live the Christian life in this world. The truth is God is at work in our midst. He's at work in our hearts and he's changing us. And so these chapters, 12, 13, 14, 15, in this context is actually part of the gospel. His presentation of the gospel would be incomplete if he didn't include these chapters that are ap applicable to Christians living in the, in the church. There's a new way of living that is part of the gospel. It's only in view of God's mercy that it's relevant to us and that it's possible for us. He is reminding us of what God has done for us in his son and what it means for our lives. It means we can offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. It's the appropriate act of worship. We're happy to give because he has caused us to be born again. And we're alive to God now. We're not dead sacrifices. We're living sacrifices. We're alive. And this is what it looks like. We are called for this purpose. So chapter 13, verse 11, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. You know the time. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. God's word is saying to us this morning, wake up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wake up. What are you doing in light of this? That's what God's word's saying. These are difficult days, divisive days. It's an adventure. It's an adventure, isn't it? Anybody bored? You know, we're not bored. It's an adventure. 
And, and we should be thinking differently than the world around us. We should be thinking with renewed minds. The Bible, God's word transforms our thinking. So we, we look differently. We live differently. Biblical truth makes a difference. In verse 2, chapter 12, we must discern the will of God with our minds renewed by his word. It's the only way to truly worship God. What is required begins with a total transformation of our worldview. We don't look at life in terms of this world. We look at it very differently. Not the realm of sin and death, but the realm of righteousness and life. That's the message of the letter to the Romans. It just transforms the way you see things. So if you come to our church and you go, man, you guys, boy, you just, I hope you think, aren't like the world around you. I, there should be a measure of that. I would hope it would be attractive but we should be different. We must be. We live in this present world, but we're no longer of the world. And the Lord hasn't given us like all these rules and sets of commandments and just said, do this, do this, do this. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his word. He transforms our mind and we play a part. We walk out and we think and discern and live according to God's will as he leads us. In, in verses 3 through 5, chapter 12, Paul begins unpacking what verses 1 and 2 look like for the Christian in the church. And he begins with unity. <laughs> You're one. And the whole section is going to be focusing on this because it's critical. He in verses 6 through 8, he talks about spiritual gifts. you got different gifts. And there, there's probably going to be conflict, so you've got to not think too highly of yourself. Apparently, spiritual gifts weren't that, devices, that divisive in the church of Rome. But if you think they can't be divisive, just read 1 Corinthians. But Paul urges individual believers to be humble. Starts out with spiritual gifts. Don't think too highly of them. Don't be wise in your own eyes. I just read through the whole letter of Romans, and I was just shocked at how much he talked about humility. Pride and grace are incompatible. <laughs> and humility is a must to guard the church. What, what's so attractive about the church is its diversity. God leads people and brings them together, and they are so different. We are, aren't we different? We are so different. It brings us together and unites us. That's what's beautiful about it. That's why it's so attractive. We don't want to all be the same. We want to enjoy this diversity. But it does present its challenges. David captured this in Psalm 133.1, that famous verse, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. The, the church is beautiful. It's attractive. It's wonderful. I love the church. 
Not just this church. I just love the church. I love the plan of God. I love what God reveals he's doing in his word. I worry about the church. Of course, I worry about everything, but I worry about the church too. And I know how vulnerable churches are and how easy it is to harm them. And I've noticed how our culture is becoming intolerant of the church. This is a difficult quote. I apologize in advance for reading it, but I did ask Jake. So if it's not good, you can talk to him. (laughs) This is from Carl Truman, and he's trying to capture what's going on in our culture and how it's just not going to be lovey-dovey with the church. In the world of psychologized man, the commitment is first and foremost to the self and is inwardly directed. Outward institutions, the church is an outward institution to some degree, become in effect the servants of the individual and her sense of inner well-being. That which hinders my own outward expression of my inner feelings is by definition harmful and to be rejected. That's what's going on in our culture. So-called external or objective truths are then simply constructs designed by the powerful to intimidate and to harm the weak. That's the narrative. Overthrowing them and thus overthrowing the notion that there is a great reality to which we are accountable, God, his word, becomes the central purpose of educational institutions. The triumph of the therapeutic represents the advent of the expressive individual and the relativizing of all meaning and truth to personal taste. Got to read that real slow about 10 times to even try to get it. But maybe it opens a category for you. It's not a book for everybody. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Some of you, if you're intrigued by that, I recommend it. But it's not for everybody. But you get the idea of we're living in this culture where it's about the self and the church can never be the servant of the individual. That's not why we're here. We can't just serve the individual. We are here for the glory of God. That's why we exist. We are here to serve him and preach his gospel and his word. We can never be the servant of the individual. And so there's a conflict. It's inevitable. We're experiencing it now to some degree. It appears that will become only more intense. And so the church needs to be ready for that. In the rest of chapter 12, Paul is touching on various components of God's good and pleasing and perfect will that Christians with renewed minds are to approve. The central theme in this rest of the chapter is love. And he goes back to it again and again in 13, 14, and 15. Love. Loving one another. Verse 9, chapter 12. Let love be genuine, not fake love. Real love. 
And that means abhorring what is evil, but holding fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection, with, a, with an affection. I mean, really feel the love that you have for one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Not, hey, honor me. I'm, I'm looking for an opportunity to honor you. And I'm going to outdo you in honoring you. And the only way I can do that is by dying to this pride that wants to exalt myself. He has a specific issue in mind and he's heading for that we're going to look at, we'll close with. In, in chapter 14, he begins looking at it. But he's preparing for that here in chapter 12 and chapter 13. He's preparing to reprove people in this church. They're thinking too much of themselves. And so he's kind of laying a foundation. And in the verses we read in chapter 13, he's wake up, recognize the, the times you're living in. And it's, it's your privilege and responsibility to put on Christ and put off darkness. And we need to understand that if we would have unity in the, the church and be able to live a faithful Christian life in the context of a local church. He's applying verses 1 and 2 to life in the local church. That's what he's doing. You may remember last week we, we prayed for a, a local church in Maryville. And we called the pastor. And we said, how can we pray for you? We're going to pray for you on a Sunday morning on that last Sunday morning. And, and it was just interesting. When he, he said, please pray for wisdom to walk through the issues the church is facing around the COVID virus, the unity of our congregation, the disagreements about political and social issues, about COVID, about vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. Pray for wisdom for the pastor. Pray for unity in the church. I read this week in the Wall Street Journal. Had a, uh, an article titled, Rural Pastors Tend to Flocks Divided. And it talked about a Lutheran church in Montana trying to stay together in the midst of COVID and, quote, fighting over face masks. I was... I was in the grocery store, New Year's Eve day. Don't go to the grocery store on New Year's Eve day. <laughs> Live and learn. 61, I found that out. <laughs> Packed, everybody's irritable, you know, traffic, long lines at the gas line. And you get to the grocery store. And I'm aware of this and being the wonderful, nice guy I am, I'm trying to just not make anybody mad. That's kind of how I live anyway. And so I'm just walking along and I'm trying to get, you know, my Peter Pan peanut butter and trying to pick out what size. And there's a guy in front of me. He's obviously looking at the peanut butter. And I'm like, okay, look, just you take your time. I'm not in a hurry. I'm not important. You, whatever. And so, and then he started to politely get out of the way. And I said, sir, you go right ahead. You, you take your time. I'm not in any rush. And he said, oh, no. Your, your mask, you're not wearing your mask properly. 
So I'm not being polite here. I'm trying to stay away from you because you're going to give me COVID. <laughs> he was avoiding me because my mask, unbeknownst to me, had fallen under my nose. And so I quickly put it back over and said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. People have different opinions about a lot of things related to COVID, don't they? A lot of different opinions about this, including masks. I'm not sure I would agree with this man's opinion. One of my sons got COVID at work, gave it to his whole family, quite a gift for Christmas. <laughs> He's a tax accountant. His firm required masks and social distancing. This is a kid that doesn't even like people. He, he invented social distancing, okay? He loves social distancing. He's a tax accountant for a reason, okay? I told him I was going to make fun of him. I'm just kidding. He apparently got the virus when he asked a colleague one question. He was wearing a mask. They were social distancing, and he got the virus. They had several cases in the firm. I'm not saying masks aren't effective. You know, if I'm in a grocery store and a guy's mask is below his nose, I'm probably going to stay in front of him in the peanut butter line. It's not my point that masks aren't effective. Pastoral team has encouraged those who gather with us to wear masks. We've, we have a, a, a must-wear mask section. We have masks available in the lobby. I'm not sure I'm even right. My point is, though, I wouldn't worry too much if I was five feet away from someone for 15 seconds and their mask was that far below their nose. I, it just wouldn't worry me. In light of everything I've read and heard. But my main point is I think masks and these other things related to the COVID virus are what Paul thinks of in a local church as a disputable matter. There is room for disagreement here. There are disagreements over these issues that we can have and maintain unity in the church. I think that's the clear teaching of God's word. So I'm calling for unity, but there's disagreements. We can have these disagreements, and then we can apply Romans 12 through 15 to our current situation and gain wisdom and discern the will of God. And hopefully the remainder of this message will make it more clear what I mean. So, chapter 14. Beginning in chapter 14, Paul addresses this issue, a specific issue in the church of Rome. It's in the context of teaching, a, you're going to live differently. So he's addressing a problem in the church. Here are the basics of the Christian life for Christians in a local church when there are disagreements. Disputable matters. Verse 1, chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. 
The weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Welcome everyone. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He'll be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. The fact that they are Christians whose minds are being renewed through the power of the gospel is relevant. If they rightly discern the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, they're going to respond differently. And Paul explains to them exactly what this is going to look like. There's a division in the church between these two groups, the weak in faith and the strong. And they're quarreling. They're fighting about whether they should eat meat, whether they should drink wine, maybe. We're not sure about that, but probably. And whether they should observe special religious day. The, the church was made up predominantly of Gentile Christians. But some of its members were Jewish Christians. And they lived in this Gentile culture in Rome. And you can understand why they were nervous about idolatry if you understand what Rome was like in the first century. And they're concerned about it. And they're trying to guard their hearts from idolatry. They don't want to be worldly. They don't want to be Roman. They wanted to maintain Jewish traditions in the context of their Christian faith. But there was self-righteousness involved. So often when you see division in the church, you're going to find self-righteousness. There was self-righteousness with the strong too. The Jewish believers prided themselves in these religious practices. And they condemned other members. They looked down on them if they didn't do what they did. On the other hand, these Gentile Christians... They didn't see any value in these practices. And they even flaunted their freedom. So there's, you can see just what's going on in the local church. And they're, they're judging. Both groups are judging the other group. They're looking down on them. Now Paul, in an amazing verse, in verse 14, says this. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He gives them his opinion. He tells them what he thinks. There is no way I'm telling you what I think. <laughs> but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. It's important to notice he doesn't try to convince the weak that they're wrong. Instead, he encourages the strong who he agrees with to love their weaker brothers and sisters for the sake of unity in the church. Verse 5, one person, you want to hear wisdom? Here's a man that's discerning the will of God. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Just make sure what you do, you're doing by faith. The one who observes the day, observes it in the honor of the Lord. 
That's the weaker brothers he disagrees with. But they're doing it to honor the Lord. He's believing the best. He's not critically judging them. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That's what unites the church, doesn't it? Verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, so he's encouraging the strong to abstain from their liberty when they're with a weaker brother. If he's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love by what you eat. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 20, don't for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I love this. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. It's good counsel. Why? Because it's going to lead to quarreling. It's going to divide the church. Verse 13. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Douglas Moo says this, Paul clearly feels that the issues dividing the Christians in Rome belong in the category of the adeophora, opinions in verse 1, that it's, it's the ESV translates it, things indifferent, disputable matters, matters that are not essential to the faith, opinions, and on which committed and sincere Christians may disagree. His purpose is to foster unity in the church by urging tolerance of one another on such issues. While the issues have changed, the modern church has frequently been tragically divided in the same way over non-essential matters without compromising on those doctrines that are essential to the gospel. So we don't believe in unity at all costs. We need to heed Paul's call to accept all those whom God accepts. Jerry Bridges apparently was dealing with some different disputable matters. How to dress for Sunday meetings and the style of music used by the church. He has a book called Respectable Sins. And he gave his opinion. On these, and then afterwards, he knew some people weren't going to be happy with him. And he says this I suspect that some of my dearest friends may disagree with some things I've said in this chapter. Some don't see the manner of dress in church or the type of music we sing as matters of preference, not disputable matters. For them, it's a conviction. He says, I respect their thinking, wouldn't want to change their convictions at all. I'd like to be like Paul. You are like Paul, man. <laughs> Who took a similar position regarding the divisive issues in Rome. He didn't try to change anyone's convictions regarding what they ate or the special days they observed. Instead, he said, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Such a statement makes many of us uncomfortable. We don't like ambiguity in issues of Christian practice, do we? It's difficult for us to accept that one person's opinion can be different from ours and both of us be accepted by God. Write it down. 
It's just true. But that is what Paul says in Romans 14. And if we'll take Paul seriously and hold our convictions with humility, it will help us avoid the sin of judgmentalism. I think we should hold all these COVID issues lightly. Just hold them lightly. There's so much confusion and disagreement. Let's just hold them lightly. When we judge others, we're usurping a position that doesn't belong to us. Ultimately, when we judge others, we're sinning against God because He's the judge. We're responsible, each of us, to the Lord for our practices and our behavior. The Lord judges us. We aren't the judge. He is the judge. Paul repeatedly says, don't judge to both groups. Sin is at the root of disunity in the church. If you go back to chapter 13, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what does he mean by that? And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then he, beginning in chapter 14, verse 1, of course, originally there wasn't a chapter break there. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. These, this quarreling is a provision for the flesh. It is, that there's a sin issue here. There's a gratifying of the sin nature that is going on when there is quarreling and division in the church. It is not putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. What he means by that, Paul talks about in the New Testament talks about, after we become a Christian, we progressively become more like Christ by the grace of God. God's grace saves us, and we are forgiven of our sins, and we are accepted by God solely because of what Christ has done for us in his perfect life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead. We're justified by faith alone in him. And we're, we're transformed at that very moment. We're, we're justified in God's sight. But then we go to live our Christian lives and we still have a sin nature, don't we? And we battle sin. And so our calling is to, by God's grace, apply the gospel in our life every day and put to death the sin nature, count ourselves dead to sin because we've been baptized into death and raised to new life, and then put on Christ. Put on Christ-like characteristics. That's the gospel. And what Paul is addressing in the local church is division, disagreement, quarreling, that is rooted in this old sinful nature. And he's, he's showing them this is what Christianity looks like in the church. Put off this quarreling, this judgmentalism, this arrogance, this wise in my own eyes, this thinking too highly of my opinions. Put that off and put on Christ, who was gentle and lowly. 
chapter 16. Look in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Chapter 16, 17. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. There there are people who have an appetite for quarreling. They have a hunger. They like it. (laughs) They like to argue. They don't like harmony in the church. They like division. I have seen it firsthand. Whoa, they like controversy. There was, there, there's a passion that happens when there's an argument. They don't value unity. They have an unhealthy craving, a sinful desire for controversy. Quarrels about words. Causes constant friction. It's easy to tear up a puzzle. So I appeal to you, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and be eager to maintain the unity the Spirit has created. I'm going to read the benediction. Uh, Stephen's going to come after we sing this last song and um, do it again. But I'm going to read the benediction. This is Paul's prayer wish at the end of the section we just looked at. Chapter 13, verse 12 and 14. This is my pastor's heart for our church. This is the purpose. The pastoral team wanted us to talk about this for this reason. This is a grand goal that we can look forward to. And we can say, Lord, it is worth it. If this takes place, this is a a benediction for us today. This is a benediction for us for 2021. I have the wrong verse. (laughs) Verse 5, chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord, in harmony with Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Lord, that was Paul's prayer wish for the church in Rome. And it's our prayer wish for our church this morning, Lord. You are the God of endurance and encouragement. I pray today that every member of our church would be encouraged. Regardless of their opinions about divisive issues, there is so much disagreement in our congregation. We disagree on these issues. Lord, I pray that we can disagree and live in such harmony with one another And in accord with Christ, 
that with one voice we bring you glory. That's my prayer. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we hope in him alone. Amen. Amen.